Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It's on, if you have a pew-style Bible, it's on page 850. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. It was now two days before Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread... And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you and whenever you go and you want to go for them. But you will not always have me. She had done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that she has done will, um, th- what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, the chief priests, they were glad. And promised him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today. As a people that feel the weakness, the strain, uh, the weight of this world. The last six days has been hard. As we work and as we rest and as we take care of the daily duties of our life. Our responsibilities, our burdens, our um, difficulties, our challenges, our joys, and our blessings. But Father, we set aside the Lord's day that we may worship. That we may worship in spirit and truth. And we gather together with our brothers and sisters to make much of our Heavenly Father, King Almighty over heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth, who we have the privilege of calling Abba Father. Not because of anything in us, but everything in Him. Though our sins are many, and we feel the weight of that in our world, in our government, in our families, in our own hearts. Your mercy is more. Your ways are not like our ways. You do not treat us as our sin deserves, but your ways are gracious and merciful to people who deserve justice and punishment and your wrath, which is good. Father, we come to you and we confess that we need you. We need you every hour. The hour we first believe and every hour since. And I pray that we would continually, by the prompting and the leading and the guiding of your Holy Spirit, repent and believe each and every day. Father, we come to you. And we lift up uh, those in our congregation who are struggling physically. 
We lift up our congregation, those who um, are struggling financially, mentally, emotionally. Lord, we pray that they would find solace in the Word of God, that our congregation would be uh, a safe place where they can share their struggles and get the uh, compassion of one another, that we may uh, encourage them and stoke the fires of the Spirit in their heart by the um, Spirit of Christ that dwells in our hearts, that we would guard one another and love one another and encourage one another, that the world may see, look how they love one another. They must belong to Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back in the book of Mark uh, after a brief excursion through Advent and uh, through with uh, Scott last week. Uh, but this morning it's good to be back in Mark. We are in the final qu- uh, quarter of the book. Jesus is now in the final days uh, during Passover, as Andrew read to us. Uh, the Passover, which is the backdrop uh, uh, for Mark 14, 15, and 16. Jesus is accomplishing the salvation to be the ransom for many. The reason he came not to be served, but to serve. But today, as we turn to uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, it's the story of two disciples. One disciple was a trusted insider. And the other disciple was a nameless outsider. One was um, enjoyed proximity to Jesus. The other is held back away from Jesus by societal norms. One's um, action is treacherous and ghastly, if you will. And the other is actions are beautiful and selfless. One serves as a warning to the religious, and the other serves as a model of discipleship to all. The question that we have to ask, though, as we read through verses 1 through 11, and we hear the Word of God, and we see this beautiful collage, as we focus in on this one mosaic tile in this collage that Mark is painting of discipleship and following Jesus, which of the disciples are you? Will you sacrifice everything for Jesus? Or will you sacrifice Jesus for nothing? Will you call Jesus um, and will you give your service to Jesus? Will he look at your service and call it treacherous? Or will he look at your service and call it beautiful? This morning I want you to know this, that genuine disciples, genuine disciples of Jesus give everything to the Savior who gave everything for them. Genuine disciples give everything to the Savior who gave everything for them. And as we look at this, uh, we see two aspects, and I'll, 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 I'll tell you what the second one is. It's not going to pop up. I forgot to do that. The first point that I want you to application as we look at uh, the first disciple is beware of a treacherous heart. Beware of the treacherous heart that actually lives in all of us. And the second one, you can sort of see probably a little shadow there, is 
serve with a grateful heart. Beware of a treacherous heart and serve with a gracious heart. Because genuine... Oh, there it is. Actually, there. Um, There it is. Serve with a a grateful heart. Because genuine disciples of Jesus give everything to the Savior who gave everything for them. I uh, anticipate some PowerPoint problems today. I just got a feeling we're like 30 seconds in and it's already have a life of its own. Let's take the first, uh, because today we're actually feasting on a Markin sandwich. And uh, if you remember a few chapters back, a Markin sandwich is when he takes two stories, puts them together, cuts story A, the first story in half, as the bread separates it, and then puts the second story, story B, in the middle. And story B in the middle unlocks the meaning of story A, which is the bread on the outside. And the first one we see, the first disciple we come across in story A that's split in two halves, verses 1 and 2, and verses 10 and 11, is the story of... um, setting the, uh, the first disciple, which is Judas. And in the backdrop of Judas in his story is the Passover. This new transition that launches uh, the events that lead to Jesus' crucifixion. Notice uh, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And this is the backdrop, the setting that the story of Jesus is saturated with. The Feast of Passover was very significant in the life and the history of the Jews because it remembered, it was really in essence Israel's Independence Day. It was the 4th of July for Israel when God, their Savior, heard their cries and brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery. And he did this by um, sending his death angel that would strike down the firstborn, but in his Grace, he said, if you sacrifice the lamb and put its blood on the door um, post, that death angel will pass over your house. All who believe the promises of God will pass over that house and the firstborn shall live. And the people of God did that. Uh, you can go see what Andrew read for us this morning. It's actually towards the end. Uh, it was a long passage. And when, why did they keep doing this? So that when we, as adults and parents, teach our children and do, why do we do rituals? Why do we have ceremonies? Why do we have remembrance? Is to be able to uh, tell and teach our children. Why do we recite the creeds? Why do we have our children in worship? It's so our children say, why do we do these things, Mommy? Why do we do these things, Daddy? And the Israel was no exception. They said, when your children say to you, what do you, what, what do you mean by this service? Why do we remember this? It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, the mercy of God. Now, also, as we remember, Jerusalem is the only city where the Passover can be celebrated. And so what would happen each year massive crowds would come and descend on Jerusalem. So much so that in this time of Jesus, the population during Passover would grow from 60,000 to 120,000 for the the weekend. And it was, or for the celebration, and it was a huge, the city was packed to overflowing with people and animals, with religious fervor and political angst, 
One commentator said it was like the world's largest county fair with animals and people and excitement brimming over, uh, literally with the smells that were there because of of the lambs and the sacrifices that were being made. And because of this, with the occupation of the Romans, uh, Jerusalem was a powder keg. It one match and it would explode. And the, the chief priests knew this. And the chief priests wanted to make sure that their puppet power from Rome was maintained. And notice what they said. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, um, for they said, but not during the feast, let there be an uproar from the people. Really, in essence, if the pesky Galileans who are devoted to Jesus get their way, they will cause a great ruckus and the Romans will come down because the Romans didn't want any part of any rebellion. The peace of Rome was not peaceful. It was ruled with an iron fist. It, uh, and so they, the chief priest said, we're going to kill Jesus. He's a troublemaker. He's, he's a threat to our power, but not this weekend. Those of you who uh, have been ever told that Jesus' life was a tragic end don't realize that Jesus' death was not spontaneous. Things didn't get out of hand quickly for Jesus. It was not a tragic end to an otherwise stellar life. It was a cold, calculated, premeditated murder at the hand of the religious leaders of Jerusalem who knew exactly what they were doing. They just didn't know at this point in Mark chapter 14 how they were going to get the deed done. But they had to calculate it. Why? Because the Romans were trigger happy. One false step, one disturbance, one seditious speech, and the the Roman sword would fall and they would lose their power. They would have to kill Jesus, but they were patient enough to say, let's wait until the Passover feast is over. Then, when all the crowds go, especially those Galileans who were just proclaiming Jesus in this triumphal uh, entry thing, they'll go home and then we'll have Jesus for ourselves, and we'll be able to snuff him out and his uh, revolts that they feared. But their plans changed. And the other second half of the story in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus to them. If the book of Mark were a movie, at this point, the, uh, you would probably hear a knock at the door, and then the camera would be wide-angle lens, and it would begin to zoom in towards this shadowy silhouette in the distance. And you can see that there's somebody there, and you can feel as this um, dramatic uh, base uh, plays of that this sinister creature or person is going to emerge from the shadow and when he does there's an audible gasp from the theater because it's Judas. Jesus is one of his most trusted confidants. It's Judas who's going to betray Jesus and then there's almost a look of shock and pure bliss on the face of the chief priest because they're like This is so much better than we had planned. 
we haven't, this death of Jesus will no longer be um, an outside job, but now it's going to be an inside job because one of his disciples is going to betray him. This is a shocking plot twist. And if you're reading for the first time through the book of Mark and you try to have to deprogram your mind because you know the other stories and you've heard it in Sunday school, but you, this is an October surprise. This is a game changer. This is too good to be true for the enemies of Jesus. They couldn't have come up with a better plan. They um, were ready. And it would be, the death of Jesus would be sweet to them. And notice verse 13. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he thought, he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him. Why? Why did Judas do this? The reality is, we simply don't know. Mark never tells us. There is some um, things that we can pick up along the road, but we never know the answer why Judas did what he did. Only Judas knows, and Jesus knew. Was it greed? Was it power? Was it revenge? Was it disillusionment that Jesus wasn't acting the way he wanted to? Mark doesn't tell us. Instead, Judas wor- works as a foil and a warning. But who is the warning that, Jews, that we get? It's to the religious people, to those who claim they follow Jesus. Judas doesn't serve to warn the um, sinners and the tax collectors. He warns those inside. His warning does not serve those outside the church. His warning is actually for those inside the church. Jesus wasn't killed by those in bars and peep shows, but those who were religious leaders who sought political power and those in closest proximity to Jesus. Quite honestly, people just like us. I thought I was going to put it in. I took it out. I'm putting it back in, but I don't have a slide. Kids, have you ever seen the movie Aladdin? Who's the bad guy in Aladdin? Jafar. And you see Jafar, and the first time you see him, you do what? That's the bad guy. Why? He's got angry eyebrows and big teeth, and and he's got that nasty bird on his shoulder. We know right off the bat, Jafar's the bad guy. Now, sometimes when we think of Judas, at least when I do, I think of Jafar. You look at 11 nice, clean-cut guys, and then there's Jafar right there, Judas. Well, that's not the reality. The reality is that Judas was probably more like Prince Hans from the Southern Isle, right? From Frozen? Prince Hans, he was charming. He was handsome. He said all the right things. And he could sing and, you know, talk about something crazy, right? And all the time you're like, oh, Prince Hans, he's wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And then what happens? Prince Hans changes. And you see what his heart really was like. Judas, when you look at him, would look just like me, if, you know, 21st century, uh, just a normal uh, religious guy, I'm a pastor. But in the heart of Judas, though he looked outside and he was trusted, he was the treasurer, he was the most trusted of all the disciples, Judas's heart may have never been with Jesus or something happened where faith in his heart was not real and not genuine. 
Proximity to Jesus, Ocean Park, does not mean faithfulness to Jesus. Judas was an insider. He accompanied Jesus day in and day out for three years. Judas saw the dead raised. He saw the lame rise and walk. He saw the blind eyes restored. He tasted the bread and the fish. He drank the water that had been turned to wine. He cast out demons. And he healed the sick. In Jesus' name, yet he betrayed Jesus. In fact, his betrayal was more egregious and more heinous because Judas went to the chief priests and the enemies of Jesus to betray him. He was not a victim of circumstances. He was not a helpless pawn in the hands of greater powers. Judas was a sovereign moral agent who freely chose to betray Jesus. His betrayal was against Jesus, and Mark never gives us the reason. Had Mark said, listen, um, Judas did this, this is why he betrayed, so what would we think? Okay, let's not do and be like Judas, because um, you simply, uh, we want to stay away from that. But Mark doesn't make it that easy for us, because the reality is a heart that walks away from Jesus is not always that simple. Uh, I came across this um, quote in one of the commentaries. I didn't come up with this. Uh, I'm not that smart, but it's really good. Dochevsky's quote in The Idiot, it says, The causes of human action are usually immeasurably more complex than our subsequent explanations of them, and they can rarely be distinctly discerned. We kind of, oh, if this had happened, if everybody would just get their act together, blah, 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 it would be all taken care of. Life isn't that easy. The depths of our sin, our struggles, our temptations are complex and tangled. And we need divine grace to untangle them or we are lost. The reality is Jesus, or excuse me, Judas was a disciple who sacrificed Jesus for nothing. We don't ever find out why. And Mark is saying, don't be like Judas. He warns us, even the closest one that we think is okay can betray Jesus. You can, and I can, be just like Judas. And if we're we're not careful, we will. Ocean Park, beware. If Judas can betray Jesus, anyone can. We have the same heart as Jesus, as the hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We have the same heart that it can be led away from Jesus for a myriad of reasons. Power, greed, lust, fear, envy, pride, sloth, gluttony. We need, brothers and sisters especially the last few weeks. We need to stop obsessing with the threats outside the church and recognize that the greatest threat to the church is inside the church and it lurks inside our hearts. We need to heed the warning of Judas and stop pointing out the sins and the hypocrisy and the faults of those people and start repenting of my sin and my hypocrisy and my faults. The reality is we, you, are those people. The greatest threat against your faith is not from the outside, but inside your heart. 
And as we see these chilling words and as we're shocked, may our prayer of David be, the prayer of David in Psalm 139 be this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there are any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Brothers and sisters, we must heed the warning of Judas and beware of a treacherous heart that sacrifices Jesus for nothing. Because there's a reality, there are a lot of people who will sacrifice Jesus for a litany of reasons, but eternally they are nothing compared to the glory of the infinite joy that is found in Christ alone. Genuine disciples of Jesus give everything to the Savior who gave everything for them. We need to beware, Ocean Park, of a treacherous heart, but we also need to serve with a gracious heart or grateful heart. Judas' um, treachery serves as the dark background of this gorgeous, beautiful picture of this anonymous, nameless woman's faith. Judas is a faithless insider. This woman is a faith-filled outsider. Her, Judas's heart is cold and hard-hearted and treacherous, but her heart is tender and compassionate and sacrificial. And what Mark is doing, like he has done so many times before, he is pushing the ideal um, disciple forward, and now the spotlight comes to this woman that doesn't even say his name. Now, for those of you who have read the other Gospels, you're like, oh, it's Mary, it's clear. Mark doesn't tell us that. We're not listening to John's story of Jesus, which is true. We're not listening to Luke's story of Jesus. We're listening to Mark's. And there's a reason that Mark never says her name. And he says Judas' name. He wants to tell us something. Notice, the ideal disciple is not Judas. It's not the religious leaders in charge of the temple of God. It's a woman. A scandalous action that she did. Verse 3, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it on her head. Now, we're like, okay, this is weird. Why is she doing this? But such actions were shocking. The, the disciples, uh, we have Simon the leper. We don't really know who he is, um, but probably a former leper that had been restored, maybe healed by Jesus. They're all together, eating together, these men. And a woman walks in, not to serve food, but to address and speak to Jesus. That just doesn't happen. That's bad etiquette. This is shocking that a woman would have such uh, uh, um, nerve to do something. This is unthinkable. But why does she do this? She begins to anoint Jesus' head with oil. And that's weird to us. But it's a common thing that would happen throughout Scripture. Uh, Sometimes it was an act of hospitality. Jesus tells uh, another host that when I came here, you did not anoint my head with oil. It was a common thing that was done in the first century. Was he anointing his head as king? I don't know. Uh, picking up the imagery of the Old Testament, she thinks Jesus is king. She anoints him. I don't. I. I would say probably not. 
Is she expressing devotion and gratitude to Jesus? We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. Just the way he never tells us why Judas betrays him. But what he does tell us, that his action, her actions were extravagant. They were beautiful. The spotlight of Mark comes on this woman as a picture of a model of a, what a disciple does. He goes out of his way. One commentator says he trips over himself in the Greek to describe her actions and the oil and the extravagance of her action. Notice he says, it's an, this oil is an alabaster flask of pure nard, very costly, worth more than 300 denarii. Now, nard, I don't believe any of you have any nard hanging around at home. Uh, you might have some Crisco that you cook with, but it's not the same thing. Nard um, is, no, no courtesy laughs, Pam? Come on, I need, to, I need to work on that. Um, I, need some, I need to help, some help. Um, nard is an aromatic... Um, aromatic oil extracted from a root in India and it was commonly stored in a um, small alabaster jar. Maybe like this. Something that would be held. It would have a um, wide bottom and a small top to regulate the amount that would come out. And the reason is because this nard was so fragrant that a drop or two would be able to fill up a whole room. And then Jesus, or Mark says this nard was incredibly, incredibly expensive. And he says it's worth 300 denarii. And if you just do this, a denarii is a day's worth of wages. And if you do six days with one day off that you don't work, it's a year's worth of salary. And so if you were to stay in today's money, it's upwards of thirty to $40,000. This is very expensive. And... Um, no woman at the time would have had such an employment where she could go purchase this. So scholars believe that it is more than likely that this is an heirloom that she has been passed down and it has of incredible sentimental worth. But more importantly, this is her social security. If the family falls on hard times and they're sickness and they're destitute and they're hungry, um, a widow or a woman who's not married and is beyond the, the marriageable age at the time, she would be able to sell this for enough money to be able to survive in the first century. So it's incredibly important. And we need to remember this as this action unfolds that Mark plays before our eyes. This nard was treasured. And it was saved as the last resort. It was her safety and it was her security. And she sacrifices it. She gives everything to honor and show her love to Jesus. Notice at the end of verse 3. She broke the flask. Those are powerful words. She could have simply come in and uh, done away with, you know, not looked at the others that were glaring at her and said, Jesus, I love you. Let me anoint your head and drop maybe one, two, three drops. And that would have been significant to fill the room with a fragrant aroma. But what did she do? She broke 
the flask. She took her safety, her security, her sentimentality, the treasures, and she gave all of it to Jesus because Jesus was that valuable and that worthy. She broke the flask. What in the world was she thinking? Mark doesn't tell us. And we simply don't know. But we do know what the others in the room